You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be finding out what day of the week it's safest to have surgery on, at least in the NHS. What we found was uh, an increasing mortality rate as uh, a patient's operation approached the weekend. But first, this month attention's been drawn in the UK Parliament to the big accountancy firms and their involvement in the drafting of tax laws. That's now under public scrutiny, but the way in which tobacco lobbyists have affected proposed plain packaging legislation has been hidden by the Department of Health. Earlier this week, I spoke to one of the people who's trying to find out. I'm joined on the line by Jeff Collin, who's a professor of global health policy at the University of Edinburgh and the author of one of the editorials that appears online on bmj.com this week. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Jeff. It's a pleasure. Now, um, this is a very UK-specific editorial, and you're talking about plain packaging legislation for tobacco products in the UK and what was going on there. So for our audience uh, overseas, could you just explain what's going on in that arena? To be honest, I wish I knew what was going on because one of the the central issues of the editorial is that there's been a a remarkable lack of clarity about a a process um, that's that's central to, to public health policy. Essentially, the government held a public consultation last year around the idea of introducing plain packaging for tobacco products, very much following the model that's very recently been introduced in Australia and in which a number of other governments uh, are interested and which in terms of international tobacco control is very much seen as the next big step forward. Uh, So it's a really important uh, policy issue and there was a lot of, of genuine excitement about this being introduced. Unfortunately, the policy appears to have been quietly abandoned in the UK. This appears to be part of a rather broader retreat from more innovative public health policies because it it coexists alongside a similar abandonment of a commitment to introduce minimum unit pricing for alcohol. Yeah. Uh, and this raises broader questions about the nature of the government's relationships with the commercial sector. There has been a sort of public health responsibility deal that the government has been trying to set up with the commercial sector, so trying to encourage them to behave better in terms of, of products that would damage health like tobacco and yeah. alcohol, food, things like that. So uh, what's going on there? Well, the public health responsibility deal raised a lot of concerns because it's essentially restricted to voluntary measures and very much written and developed in association in particular with the food and alcohol industries. And there's been concern that essentially obesity and alcohol policy from a public health perspective has been constrained by or even written by the food and alcohol companies. Uh, And obviously there's been a, a lot of concern around that um, within uh, the UK, but it also mirrors much broader debates about whether it's possible to partner with producers of unhealthy commodities in looking to circumscribe some of the the health effects of those products, uh, debates which are are being plotted out internationally, not least in the context of the uh, UN high-level meeting on NCDs and and moving forward with the broader global non-communicable disease agenda. Mm. Now, tobacco was separate from that responsibility deal, but there's been concerns that the tobacco industry has actually uh, had an influence 
with the government, um, which led to the withdrawal of that uh, potential legislation for plain packaging. And that's where your freedom of information request came in. So you were trying to find out what was going on there. That's right. Uh, The tobacco industry has for a long time been treated as very different to to other industries in terms of excluding the possibility of partnership with them in the development of of health policy. And this is reflected in formal terms within the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, an international public health treaty, a key part of which requires parties to the treaty to protect the development of public health policy from the vested interests of the tobacco industry. So there are formal international obligations not to engage unnecessarily with tobacco companies Mm. in the development of policy and expectations that there should be very high levels of transparency about any interactions that do take place with the tobacco companies. So in this context, the lack of transparency about decision-making around plain packaging, particularly in the context of reports about the influence of an advisor to the Prime Minister, who's a a former lobbyist for the tobacco industry in Australia, raises a number of of concerns. Mm, And that sort of culture of obfuscation is uh, what your editorial is about. It is. We made a freedom of information request, which was really surprisingly rejected. Essentially, we were looking for submissions by the tobacco industry and allies to the public consultation, which is, by any stretch of the imagination, a really modest request. And we're really taken aback when this was rejected. And in particular, when the rationale for it being rejected was that policy discussions were ongoing and therefore it would be inappropriate to disclose any of the information on which these decisions were being made, (laughs) which in our view is clearly contrary to the requirements of the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control and commitments to transparency with the tobacco industry that are central to that treaty. Mm. And it sort of um, signals a greater shift in culture. This government came in two years ago and there was talk about a statutory register for lobbyists to highlight some of the influences that go into government policy and that too has been dropped. Yes and again that maybe doesn't sound like a a public health issue when you first look at it but actually the idea of a statutory register of lobbyists is, is very important in the context of a government seeking to work with commercial sector organisations, whether that be in the reform of the NHS or in public health policies, a statutory register of lobbyists would be one tool that would enable us to have a better understanding of that process. And interestingly, Sarah Wollaston, a, a Conservative MP, has been at the forefront of condemnation of, of the failure to move forward on the statutory register of lobbyists precisely because of concerns about our uh, limited understanding mm. of the decision process and the influence of corporations upon it. Now, this has been sort of quite a parochial discussion so far, yeah. very based on the UK, but it isn't a UK problem. Um, in the BMJ, we've reported about concerns at the level of the WHO about the influence of food and alcohol at their high-level meetings. What's the sort of world picture of corporate interest in public health? We're now at a key point in an emerging debate about the interactions between the commercial sector and the potential scope for collaboration in the achievement of health objectives. And for a long time, the political commitment to partnerships with commercial actors has 
outstripped an evidence base for the appropriateness or effectiveness of those interventions, uh, particularly in areas like alcohol and food policy. Within the World Health Organization, there's a much broader process of reform that's ongoing, but a key issue uh, in that reform process is essentially around the, the terms of engagement with commercial sector uh, actors. There's been a lot of attention recently to the differences, if you like, between the way in which WHO um, has interacted with the food industry or the alcohol industry and the very different type of regulation that it has for its interactions with the tobacco industry. And this, this raises much broader questions about the role of corporations as vectors of disease, if you like, mm. understanding the global burden of NCDs as, as in many respects industrial epidemics. There's essentially two sides to this debate. One says we must, must partner with the commercial sector because uh, of their central role in these issues and the, the, the resources that they can bring to efforts to tackle them. But uh, on the other side of the debate, there's a concern that it's, it's simply inappropriate to look to partner with actors whose core economic interests are likely to conflict uh, with public health goals and who are therefore likely to uh, restrict any measures to those which aren't going to impact on their future profitability. Well, Jeff Collin, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. And that editorial is now available online on bmj.com. Now, what day of the week is safest for surgery? Paul Aylin, a clinical reader in epidemiology and public health at Imperial College London, explains his research. Our study uh, looks at post-operative mortality, so that's deaths occurring within 30 days of an operation in uh, English hospitals uh, between the years 2008 and 2011. So we actually looked at three years of data. Um, we looked at death rates by day of the week, uh, looking at uh, death rates between uh, Monday and Friday, and also looked at weekend death rates as well. And we focused on planned uh, surgery, so elective uh, uh, admissions. Now, the reason why we looked at planned surgery is that previous work has looked at emergency surgery. Uh, and in fact, we published ourselves some work uh, a couple of years ago uh, looking at mortality rates from uh, emergency admissions uh, uh, in patients admitted at the weekend compared to the rest of the week. And we found about a 10% increase in the risk of death. Uh, and a, a number of other groups uh, around the world have also found a, a, a similar result. We looked at uh, over 4 million operations carried out over a three-year period in English NHS hospitals uh, and uh, found during that period uh, uh, just under 28,000 deaths. So we're really looking at a, a, a very low uh, mortality, less than a, a percent uh, of uh, operations end in a uh, death. But what we found was uh, an increasing mortality rate um, uh, uh, as uh, a patient's uh, operation approached the weekend. So we found uh, around about a 44% higher 
odds of death on a Friday compared to uh, patients admitted on a Monday, which suggests a, uh, around about a 40% increase in risk of death. Um, we found a, a higher risk of death in patients operated on over the weekend, um, uh, around about 80% higher, um, but uh, one can't exclude the fact that actually patients operated at a, on at a weekend are probably a slightly different mix of patients than during the rest of the week. We try to account for some of the uh, explanations. So, um, first of all, the kinds of patients operated on um, during the week might be slightly different towards the end of the week uh, and at the weekend compared to the beginning of the week. And so we try to take into account some of the factors that, uh, that, 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 that uh, could contribute to this. Uh, so we adjusted for uh, age of the patient, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, overall risk of the types of operations that these patients were having uh, and a number of other factors. Um, so we tried to account for those uh, potential differences and actually when we looked at these um, uh, factors there wasn't a great deal of difference between those patients operated on a Friday and those patients operated on a, on, on a Monday. Um, so we were able to take into account some factors and, and that leaves us with one, one possible explanation that uh, this increasing trend in mortality rates um, uh, is due to poorer quality of care at the weekend. However, this type of study is an observational study and it's very difficult to draw uh, those kinds of conclusions just looking at routinely collected data. But that's certainly one of the uh, explanations that uh, uh, we might want to consider if we're going on to do some further work. And that's also available as one of our video abstracts, which you can find on bmj.com's multimedia page or on our YouTube site. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.